You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't need to tell anyone what uh, took place about two and a half weeks ago um, when the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. was stormed by a group of people. But it's interesting to consider why did the majority of Americans condemn that action? Because certainly we've seen far worse events on the news. Could it be the reason was what we saw shocked us in the sense that that's not what we expected citizens of our own country to do. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about what is a citizen of heaven and God's kingdom look like? Uh, In other words, not just how they should act, but what is the very character of a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so we're going to take some time looking at what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And as we direct our attention to that sermon, Uh, Matthew's gospel is is very intriguing the way it's put together under the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, That in in many ways, Matthew presents Jesus Christ, not just as the promised king of the Jews, but but in a sense as a new and better Moses. Uh, And just like the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch, uh, and we attribute Moses as being the author, The Gospel of Matthew is centered around five major discourses or speeches. And the very first one of those is what we're talking about here, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take a closer look at how this begins in verses 1 and 2. Because the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon worth hearing. Uh, And so I want to think of why is it? Why is it a sermon worth hearing? Other than the answer, you might say, well, it's in the Bible. So, of course, it's in the Bible. It's worth hearing. But but I think there's much more to that than just that simple reply. But look at verse 1. Thinking about what I said with Moses presenting Christ as the new and better Moses. Notice verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he, referring to Jesus, went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So right before this, we're told that Jesus spends time in prayer. 
he selects the disciples that he's are going to call to follow him. And then he's been doing lots of miracles. And because of the crowds he's attracting, he often has to position himself in a place to do his teaching. But if you listen closely to verse one, you find some phrases there that would bring your attention back as a Jew to Moses. Notice the first one, he, he went up on a mountainside. Now, some translations say he went up on the mountain. Uh, probably mountainside here is a little bit of a deceiving term. Um, not that Jesus went up and climbed some mountain top, but probably that he went to an elevated hillside. But there's a similarity there with where did Moses go to receive the law and speak God's word? He went up on a mountain. Jesus Christ prepares to teach now, and he teaches on a mountainside. Notice, though, also in verse 1, it says that he began to teach them. Um, some translations have the phrase, and he began to open his mouth. Now, that might seem self-evident. Well, if he's going to teach them, he'd have to open his mouth to speak. But, but the play on an Hebrew idiom in there, to open one's mouth, typically means you're going to speak something that is of great significance. So Matthew reminds us as you go through this sermon that just like Moses delivered the law of God, Jesus Christ comes and now he speaks as fulfilling the law. So it's a sermon worth hearing, one, because of the similarity that this clearly is a message of God that is intended. But you notice as well in verse one that it seems like the immediate audience is his disciples that group that he just sort of assembled that's referenced in chapter four. But the interesting thought is, if you look briefly, just go ahead to Matthew chapter seven. If you go to Matthew chapter seven and verses 28 and 29, you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you have these words in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had a third authority and not as their teachers of the law. The reference to the crowds being amazed may tell us that although the teaching is focused on the 12, on the disciples, that the crowds were often kind of eavesdropping and listening in on this sermon. So it clearly is a sermon worth hearing and listening to. But that's true, not just for the original recipients, not just for this group gathered somewhere in maybe north of Galilee, but it is true in terms of this sermon is relevant to every believer. So if, if you've ever researched a sermon on the Mount a little bit, you know there's a wide range of application here. Uh, there's one school of thought that would say, well, this sermon was really meant just for the first century disciples. There's another school of thought that says, well, this sermon is, is dealing with end time events uh, way off into the future. And, and that that may only be relevant to certain individuals living at a certain period in redemptive history. But I'd like to make the case that what you have here is a sermon 
that is relevant to every believer in Christ now. Uh, and so you may have noticed if you look at the Beatitudes here in verses 3 through 12, that if you look at verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that clearly would be present tense, a present reality. Then you go to verse 10, and verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, present tense. But as you'll see in our study, when you look at the Beatitudes between verses 4 through 9, those are all certainly couched in the future tense. And I think that may be a reference to what we see here is this character of the followers of Christ. Those who are in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven are experiencing both an inaugurated rule starting at Christ's ministry on earth, but also an aspect of that is future and awaits completion at Christ's return. So even though we see those changes in tense, it's not delegating or relegating this to a sermon that's only relevant to Christians somewhere off in the future or the end times. So all of those ingredients to take in together show us it's a sermon that's worth listening to and hearing. But it's not a sermon about how to get into the kingdom, but it's a sermon about what those should be like who are in the kingdom. So in other words, even uh, Gandhi, a spiritual leader in India, liked the Sermon on the Mount. But he thought it was good only from an ethical standpoint. In other words, it talked about how you should behave and treat one another. Matthew's presenting it not as here merely an ethical code of conduct, but it's a spiritual diagnosis of the character of those who are saved, who are in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Which sort of brings us to the word blessed. So one of the reasons that it's called the Beatitudes is the, the very first word that begins versus you know, three through 11 is the word blessed. Uh, the Latin translation of that, betus, uh, has been rendered into the term beatitudes. What that word blessed means is, is not necessarily happy, but to be favored or approved. And so it's a discourse, a teaching on what does it mean to be favored or approved by God? What, what should be the character? What is the character of those who proclaim him as Lord and Savior? So you notice there's a total of eight Beatitudes, kind of well, verses 10 through 12, all sort of relate to the final Beatitude. So we'll look at these, but this morning we'll begin by looking at just the first three Beatitudes. In other words, considering that the Sermon on the Mount is altogether a sermon on kingdom norms. In other words, what is the normal character, the expected character of those who know Jesus Christ? And it's covered throughout this sermon, but highlighted in each of the Beatitudes. So let's start with the first Beatitude there in verse 3. Uh, you'll notice that each Beatitudes has two parts. One sort of talks about the condition 
And the second part explains the blessing or results that come from that condition. So we'll start with the first half of verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So a question that probably immediately comes to our minds is, well, what exactly does that mean? Because it doesn't say, you know, just blessed are the poor. Uh, in other words, this has sometimes been misunderstood in history um, that Christians are to not have any material possessions, uh, that we are to embark on some kind of, you know, strict monastic life. Uh, but, it, but it's a qualification on this. What blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Matthew uses a word for poor there that is one of the strongest terms in reference to, to poverty. Uh, in other words, blessed are those who are destitute, but then ties it to, well, what does it mean to be destitute in spirit? And I believe what Matthew's getting at here is every Christian should realize and have a right attitude about oneself before God. So to be poor in spirit means when you come to God, you have a right understanding and attitude about yourself before God. In other words, that we approach God with the complete absence of pride, that, that there is a daily recognition in our lives that we, we are still sinners, but saved from the power and guilt of sin through Christ. But we are still dependent upon him. That, that's what it means to be coming to him poor in spirit. We, we understand our right standing before him and are very much spiritually self-aware of our dependence upon him. Uh, think back to Paul's well-known cry in Romans 7, where he says, a, a wretched man that I am, who, who can save me from sin? And I believe when Paul's writing that in Romans 7, he, he's talking about the normal experience of the Christian life, that, that here you're experiencing that tension between you want to grow in Christ, and yet sometimes you still sin, you say things that you regret, and you're like, I, why did I do that? Like, I, I know that's what I shouldn't do. Why did I just do that? And so that healthy understanding, being poor in spirit, a wretched person that I am before God, except by God's grace. And notice this, this doesn't mean in your workplace, you walk around saying, well, I can't do anything. I'm such a wretched person. This is dealing with your relationship on a spiritual level with the Lord. And, and with that being said, I read of a, a well-known Puritan prayer, which was actually written for ministers, that in the prayer, it says this, uh, Lord, help me to help me to loathe myself and take my joy in you. I mean, kind of think about that. I'm praying, Lord, help me to loathe myself and take my joy in you. And that gives you that proper balance. We recognize we are poor in spirit, completely, every day, dependent on God's grace and work, and that we would take our joy then in him. 
And so you see, when you think about being poor in spirit, it's first having a right attitude about oneself before God. And then secondly, in that, having complete confidence in Christ. Because you notice the second part of verse 3. What is the result of being poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you would go to Matthew 6 and verse 33, later in the sermon, you will find the very familiar words of Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, by being poor in spirit, you will receive life. Your needs will be met, not your wants, but your needs. God will provide for you in Christ Jesus. So what a, a statement is made just in that first beatitude. To be poor in spirit, and what was the result of that? You will have life because you will depend upon Jesus Christ. Let's move now to the second beatitude in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Now imagine hearing this as a disciple. Uh, you're familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament has many examples of lamenting, grieving, sorrowing. Uh, the word chosen here by Matthew does mean to grieve or sorrow. Uh, and it's repeated tense. So it's not like you do this once and you're done. But blessed are those who mourn. So what is it Jesus Christ is saying should mark the character of a Christian? Does he want a bunch of mopey disciples? Disciples who are kind of whining? Well, no, that can't be it. Because we're told we're to be thankful. We, as we just read in Matthew 6, 33, if we know our Heavenly Father, we know he will take care of us. So what are we to be mourning? Well, if you've ever noticed Hasidic Jews, Hasidic Jews are the ones that you will see with the, uh, the long curled like sidebars, side hair. Uh, they often dress in black and white. Uh, if you've ever wondered why do they dress in black and white, um, the real reason is they're mourning the loss of the temple. So even today, they're looking back at what happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, and they're grieving that they don't have the temple. And, and kind of think, think about that now in terms of what is Jesus saying here, that we are to be, that blessed, favored, and approved by God are those that mourn. Well, let's consider that the mourning here would be, first of all, that we express godly sorrow over sin, uh, that sin troubles us. And that's a real indication that you're growing spiritually. Are you troubled over sin? Does it increasingly upset you? Uh, is it something that you literally mourn or grieve over? And you can approach this in different ways. Uh, we started our service by reading Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is the bookend to Psalm 51. And they both deal with David mourning over his sin of adultery and murder. And so in there, 
in Psalm 51, you have G, you have David specifically saying, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Now, has sin affected other people? And certainly there was areas that that needed to be addressed. But he was keeping clear and modeling for us, mourning for sin. In other words, we should mourn over personal sin in our lives. That, that should trouble us as a Christian. And I think you'll find that as you're growing in Christ, you will become more and more sensitive to that in your own life. But it should be something that marks every believer in Christ, not just some believers, but, but every believer. So there's a mourning over personal sin. There should also be a mourning and a sorrow over sin and its effect in the lives of others. Uh, that troubles us as we look maybe in our own community and, and see broken families. We see broken relationships. We, we shouldn't just see that and be, oh, I'm so glad that's not me or that's not my situation. But, but that should grieve us. And we should grieve over the sin that certainly we see evident in, in our world uh, and its rejection of God uh, in its pushback and seek even today to redefine everything according to one's own personal definition of, of whether it be sexual identity or, or who they are as a person, that, that everyone wants to define that now for themselves, that God has no role from our world's perspective in defining that for us. Completely the opposite of what we see in scripture. Think of the examples we have of Jesus. You know, why, why did Jesus weep uh, over the news that Lazarus had died? Um, certainly that did not shock him. It wasn't that he didn't know that Lazarus was dead. But could he have grieved not just because Lazarus was his friend, but he was a glaring example of the consequences of sin. That the death is the result, physical death is the result of sin in our world, which will one day be eradicated completely by Christ, but it is a present reality of sin. And then we have that very moving scene in the Gospels where Jesus kind of approaches Jerusalem for the final time and, and sees the city off in the distance. What does he do? He, he weeps because they have rejected not, not just him, but all of the prophets who have come before him to warn them. And so we have modeled in Christ this aspect of, of mourning over sin. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 and 11, where Paul uh, reminds the church in Corinth that they should mourn over sin personally as well as corporately. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 and 11, you have an excellent definition of, of what godly sorrow looks like. Because it is easy when we speak of this to realize that, that some Christians are very sensitive to personal sins. And sometimes they can struggle on the opposite end of this. Well, how do I know I'm forgiven? So listen to verses 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. 
Paul writes, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. In other words, Paul's going to echo what this second beatitude says as a result, that godly mourning over sin then opens the door for you and me to experience the joy of forgiveness and restoration. Because look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. What's the promise that follows? For they will be comforted. They will be encouraged. They will have the assurance that in Christ their sins have been paid in full. That they can receive ongoing forgiveness and restoration. So keep in mind that this is written to those who know Christ. Because it would be devastating to give the false assurance to someone who's not a Christian that, well, if you feel bad, uh, don't worry, God will comfort you and encourage you and restore you. Well, he won't if you have not acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior. So now we come to the third and final beatitude in this morning's study in verse 5. Um, simply stated, blessed are the meek. Uh, now, here we come to a word that is so misunderstood, not just in our world, uh, where it's often perceived as meekness is weakness, uh, but even among Christians. You know, what, what does this word mean, that blessed are the meek, or, or blessed are the lowly, or the humble? Uh, and there seems to be a distinction, as you'll see, between meek and those who are poor in spirit. Uh, so there is a slight difference. Uh, each of the Beatitudes tend to build on the previous one. Uh, you tend to see an increased difficulty as you go through the Beatitudes in terms of what this will look like. Uh, but let's step back and think for a moment. What does it mean to be gentle or lowly or humble? Well, maybe it would be helpful to first think, well, throughout the scriptures, who is described as being meek or humble? And there are two specific examples of this. In the book of Numbers, Moses is described as being a man who is meek beyond all others. And I think that might somewhat surprise us. Moses, you know, the, the leader of Israel, the one who... Who, who spoke God's word with authority is also described as being a model of being meek. And the second example would probably equally be somewhat surprising, Jesus. And, and Jesus only on one occasion actually describes himself using a specific word, and he does here in Matthew, you can see it in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me, I am meek and lowly, I am meek and gentle. 
So we have those two examples to help us say, well, then what does it mean that blessed, favored, and accepted by God are those that are meek? And I think, first of all, the first trait that goes with being humble or meek is that we yield to God and his word. We, we subject ourselves. We place ourselves rightfully under the authority of God and his word. That in other words, on a daily basis, we should be expressing what John the Baptist did <clears throat> in saying, he must increase and I must decrease. That, that, that we realize there's that constant battle to submit to God's will over our own personal will. And that's a struggle. As, as you grow in Christ, you should be experiencing that in different degrees in your life. But there's another component to that, and that is not just that we are learning every day to, to yield more and more to God and God's word, but then secondly, that we are quick to forgive and bear the injustices of others. That that's a part of humility. It's certainly a part of what Christ modeled for us. Did he not bear the, the injustices committed against him? Did he not seek to retaliate? Even at his final arrest there, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, when Peter draws a sword and, and slices off the ear of one of the, the, the people there, Jesus says, what, what are you doing? You come for me with, with clubs and in darkness here. You didn't need to do that. I haven't hid from you. In other words, he came humble in spirit. And so when we think of that in terms of how we live our lives, how do we bear with the injustices committed maybe personally against you in the workplace uh, and even your relationships with other Christians? Uh, do we approach those as submitting everything and desiring ultimately to be obedient to God's will, to not retaliate. Now, there is a place for proper confrontation, for speaking the truth in love, but I think often we cross that line where we just want justice. We, we want revenge. We want to see it now. And Christ is reminding that's not the character, not only of Christians, that's not the character of Christ. And notice the, the promise that goes with that in verse 5, for they will inherit the earth. Now, again, this is often very misquoted. Uh, you know, sometimes it's used almost to support this thought of a, an, an Eastern view of karma. You know, well, if you just kind of grin and bear it now, you know, they'll get what they deserve. But, but that's not what Matthew is addressing here. Notice he's giving a promise here that those who know Christ, that there are riches beyond what we will receive in the life to come. And we can look at that full scale. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, that, that we will reign with Christ in that. But, but I want to go to 2 Corinthians 6.10 to, to see this lived out and practiced in the Apostle Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, we, we know that Paul's uh, 
received many unfair critical remarks from the church in Corinth. Some very vicious things. They've attacked Paul's ministry. They've attacked him personally. They've questioned, you know, is he really an apostle? But you get to 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. And, and Paul's in the middle of a discussion about the hardships that he's endured. In, in other words, the costs that he's incurred in following Christ. And, and he lists a number of aspects in that. Uh, certainly, he's including much more than he literally writes. Uh, but you get to verse 10. And listen how this verse echoes that third beatitude, that blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Is it possible that in Christ that we do, even now, possess everything? I mean, as you're, as you're listening to the Beatitudes, it should strike you, this is not how our world would say you should approach life. That, that our world would promote being assertive. Um, you know, if, if you don't, you know, just put yourself first, you're going to get left behind. And here, Paul is echoing that third beatitude and saying, you, you realize in Christ, when you submit to him, when you live for God's honor and glory, you may be seen as having nothing, but actually you have everything. You may be perceived as being poor by others, but actually you are the richest of all. No wonder the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes described as being the greatest sermon delivered by the greatest preacher. But as we've seen in these first three Beatitudes, it begins with not here's what you need to do, but here's the recognition of your need that you are poor in spirit. But out of a recognition of your need, we're driven to realize the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus. And that's the way we should approach the Sermon on the Mount. Not, here's what you need to do in order to be approved by God, but because God has called you in Christ and saved you, now, here is how you should live and display the character of Christ. Because really the whole intent of this sermon and these Beatitudes is reminding us God first focuses on the heart, on the attitude. Out of that should come a change in actions, but not the reverse. Not just putting on some formal Christian activity, but it isn't a true reflection of what's in the heart. So I encourage you, read, read ahead a little bit, maybe this week. Just go through the Beatitudes. Read them a couple different times uh, because it's, it's fascinating to see what they have to tell us about how citizens in the kingdom of God are to conduct themselves and why. It's because we have a Christ-like character. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for these encouraging words that were spoken by Jesus Christ. Lord, may we go over them and we pray on them. Uh, may we take just the three Beatitudes we've looked at uh, and pray uh, that we would mirror those and live up to what is ours in Christ Jesus. By his grace and his power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.